Iron Dave, no, Iron Ninja Dave instead of Keto Dave is what we, we you've, you've transitioned away from, from Iron Ninja Dave to Keto Dave. We got Dave Feldman on. Dave is a, uh, I guess I'd call him a citizen scientist extraordinaire. He's sort of revolutionizing some of our thought around cholesterol and general energy transportation in our body in general. It's got some interesting stuff to talk about. Dave, you just got done doing a crazy experiment where you ate a bunch of, you know, basically had a donut diet for a while and trying to test out some kind of, uh, you know, parameters of what happened with that. Can you give us a quick, well, just give it a quick, uh, just a quick couple minute background on what's going on and what your latest, latest thing is. And then we can get into the stuff that, you know, I get asked every day, what the hell do I do when I have a high cholesterol when I, when I see my doctor? So let's talk about your latest sort of adventure and, and that sort of stuff. First of all, of course, thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I <laughs> I try not to take up too – my story, my backstory is just getting too long, so I try not to spend too much time with each podcast retreading the same material for like 15 minutes. So you can, of course, Google just Dave Feldman and cholesterol and <laughs> get plenty of hits that probably do that fine. I'm an extreme N of one experimenter. Uh, I found out after going on a ketogenic diet that my cholesterol went super high, and then I started doing a number of these experiments to change and manipulate it. And more and more, I'm not only convinced, but I have strong data, not just for myself, but the people who follow me, uh, that this is definitely an energy distribution system first and foremost, and cholesterol is along for the ride. Now, as far as the most recent experiment, to give you an idea, I needed to try to gain weight. Um, and... Well, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are used to, oh, yeah, Dave's trying to make some gains. Not the kinds of gains you would expect. In fact, I don't know of anybody who would do what I was doing. I was intentionally trying to gain body fat. And it's kind of hilarious because the trick was that I was trying to gain uh, as much subcutaneous fat and as uh, little android, as, as little visceral fat especially, as I could. But I knew that that was a genuine risk. And uh, you guys know you guys know the ultimate trick to gaining body fat quickly, right? Donuts. Donuts and French <laughs> fries. <laughs> Donuts and French fries would work, but but I'll concede I tried to actually narrow down the nature of the carbohydrates, so I I kept it at just primarily flour based, um, especially you know lots of things that had gluten in it. And uh, yeah, the trick is just get your insulin up and keep it up. In other words, maintain a state of hyperinsulinemia. And that's why I have a lot of every, just about everywhere I talk about this experiment as I'm doing it, even though I like to inform everyone of every experiment that I do, I emphasize that I don't want anyone else to do this experiment, that it assumes a risk. I don't, I'm not a fan of hyperinsulinemia but it is in fact the only way that I could rapidly gain fat. And wouldn't you know it, it worked. I gained a lot of fat pretty quickly. Uh, I bet, your, I bet my, your wife is thrilled, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she was. <laughs> I have to tell you, if, uh, if there's ever a movie made about my life in this phase of time, probably one of the most comical scenes would be me walking into the bedroom because this really happened when I said, honey, it would really help my research a lot <laughs> if I could gain a bunch of weight, uh, and in particular, fat. <laughs> and 
my wife, to her credit, has been supportive to the extent to where now she just kind of rolls her eyes and says, it's okay, okay, whatever. It's not going to be forever, though, right? And I'm like, no, 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 of course not. So well, you're like you're like uh, you're like Robert De Niro and Raging Bull and some of those stuff. You know, those actors have to pork out for their roles. So maybe if you become an actor, yeah. you, you got it down. Well, then it must also I, be nice. I was going to say it must be Go nice ahead. to know too that she trusts you enough that or trusts your process enough that she knows you can lose it pretty easily afterwards too. She does. Um, we did have a discussion on risks, and I really, I really do. Comedy aside, I really want to somberly say this. There are a number of different experiments that I do where I see my cholesterol up in the 200s or 300s, my LDL cholesterol. And those, I don't even bat an eye at. Um, I do believe that of all the experiments that I've done, this was a little bit of the most scary. Not, not because gaining weight for a short amount of time is super concerning, but radically shifting your metabolic pathway, and in particular to do something like induce a state of hyperinsulinemia quickly, can have short and potentially unexpected long-term risks. So I really can't emphasize enough, I don't want to romanticize this part of my research. It's just I have an advantage other people don't in that I have over 90 blood tests to an extent to where I have my metabolic, uh, my metabolism very well mapped. So I, I know approximately where my lipid numbers will be, and a lot of other markers will be based on what I'm eating at that time. So this afforded a special opportunity to not only capture whether that part of my theory was correct, but also capture some other great pieces of information along the way. So for example, when I switch back to a ketogenic diet, if I'm taking things like DEXA scans and so forth, and I keep the diet extremely controlled, extremely controlled to where I'm eating exactly what's against a specific plan and the same thing every day is boring and as annoying as it sounds, and I, I assure you it is, what would that do to my lipid panels? Would, would we observe a hyper response in action? And that data will be breaking soon and it's pretty exciting. Uh, well, we'll look, we're definitely gonna look for, I know you're getting everybody waits to see what kind of data you put out because it's always very interesting so this is a you know and this is i know you've gone over this ground before but um but i think it's so important i think we the more people that, that know about this the better it's going to be long term but you know the what i get sent to me almost every day is a, just probably not probably to the extent to you do but i certainly see it all the time somebody will show me their lipid panel and they'll have gone on a ketogenic diet a low-carb diet or a carnivorous diet and and more often than not, they'll come in and they'll have this thing, this discussion that, hey, my doctor's really concerned. He wants to meet with me next week because my, you know, my total cholesterol is 350 and my LDL is, you know, 240 or 250, 260. And they're very concerned about that. And, you know, I, I know you like to look at remnant cholesterol and the other factors, but just for the people out there that are in that situation and even the physicians that may be listening to this, can we safely say that cholesterol is not the bad guy in all situations, or can we just say that every time it's high, it's problematic, and we just need to go on the statins and, and, and don't ask any other questions, or should we be asking other questions and looking at other, other, other information? I, I would say both. By the way that you worded it, um, my speculation is that no, there is an entire category in which LDL cholesterol could be high and for which I believe I've put together quite an enormous amount of evidence that it's 
not necessarily benign, but absolutely appropriate, given that it is it is the um, remaining uh, lipoproteins that are left over after direct fatty acid delivery by their predecessor in the life cycle VLDLs. So not to get too technical, but if you need boats, that's what lipoproteins are, they're carrier particles. If you need those boats to carry fatty acids, since you're now powered by fat much more than you are by carbs, in your bloodstream, uh, they're either going to come there from, from food you just ate, which is another kind of carrier protein called chylomicrons. They're going to come from fatty acids stored in your body fat. So if you have a lot of body fat, then you have a lot of local energy availability in the form of fatty acids that get lipolysized out of there and can go to nearby and adjacent cells. Or, or you have VLDLs, and VLDLs come from your liver, and they ultimately came mostly from fatty acids that came from storage also in your adipose sites. But because you had less adipose mass, because you had less body fat overall, it takes more different places throughout your body's body fat to supply energy to the areas that need to be targeted for use. So when you bear that in mind, and I know I got a little bit technical there, but when you bear that in mind, it's why it makes sense from my general theory perspective as to why it is there are this classification of people, especially lean, fit people, and I'll bet you guys see a lot of them, lean and fit, and they see their LDL be very high. And I could see other part of what you just said. Is it worth asking follow-up questions? And my answer is yes. The question is, do you have high LDL, but you have high HDL, and, and this particular classification typically has 80 uh, HDL or higher. And do you have low triglycerides, especially interested in low triglycerides? And 70 or lower are also part of this end extreme class, right? And that end extreme class, I like to call lean mass hyperresponders. And lean mass hyperresponders have the highest LDL numbers I've seen, yet they have the best markers across the board. They tend to have super low infl inflammation markers, very low uh, CRP, their AST, their ALT, all their liver enzymes, they look fantastic. They, they're the picture of health and they often say, I feel better than I ever did in my life, but my LDL is super high, my GP wants to put me on a statin, my cardiologist wants me to stop this, and that's the problem. That's the conundrum we face right now. Yeah, David, and there's so much you can talk about this, and, and I think one of the things, so one, one of the things, and I know you've talked to me about this privately, and I think you've talked about it before, but when we look at typically animal models on how they demonstrate, you know, atherosclerotic plaque formation or, or, or damage, it's not that they just strictly utilize high levels of, of LDL. You know, I've seen some studies where they keep animals up at over 2,000 milligrams per deciliter, you know, with, with certain animals and dogs, you know, at least 800. So something that humans typically don't see, but they usually have to do something else to, 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 to allow that atherosclerosis to, to actually form. And so it's not just the LDL being high independently. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, and what we were talking about, I believe, was uh, when last you were out here in Las Vegas and we were having lunch, and I was explaining how often they try to hurry the process of an animal, particularly they do this with rodents, um, try to hurry it along by inducing atherosclerosis, but they don't induce it by injecting lots of extra native LDL particles. They induce it 
by putting in a balloon catheter and actually uh, expanding it and contracting it several times in order, uh, typically in the carotid artery. And then what will happen is oftentimes that, that beaten up endothelial layer, the endothelium is what uh, lines the vessel walls, that becomes dysfunctional, damaged, and ultimately can induce some atherosclerosis. And then, as, as irony would have it, then they start testing different uh, lipid-lowering drugs to see how well it can impact that, um, uh, that atherosclerotic plaque that's forming. Uh, the reason I find this so amusing is we're literally having it proven over and over again every single day with this happening that clearly damage to the endothelium causes atherosclerosis. It's the most clearly direct cause you can actually observe. Uh, it, I mean, all of us who are, you know, listening, the, the, it's, it's kind of, it's like a little bit frustrating for me because the problem is in order for you to say, um, thing number four is a cause, it's an independent cause. You need to clear away things one, two, and three that have been observed to have a higher association or even a higher likelihood to be causative. And let's say one is endothelial damage, two is oxidative stress, three is inflammation, right? And oxidative stress and inflammation may ultimately just really overlap with endothelial damage. But the number one thing is endothelial damage. You have to control for endothelial damage to confirm that it was higher levels of LDL particle count that actually caused atherosclerosis absent the endothelial damage. And this is why I get a bit frustrated is I feel like there's there's such a leap to judgment that it's LDL particles that are the problem, that there's not, there's not an adequate level of appreciation for how much LDL particles are part of the reparative process. Damaged endothelial cells, and I say this on several podcasts, but I can never say it enough, damaged endothelial cells express LDL receptors. LDL receptors are specifically calling for passing by LDL particles. They're calling for help specifically. If, if, I, if everybody in my neighborhood always calls ambulances when they get injured or hurt, it's kind of crazy for us to blame ambulances on injuries because they seem to have a high association. You see what I'm saying? So yeah. it's, it's, not, it's not so much that I'm willing to rule out that high LDL particles can be causative. It's that I feel the evidence, the case for it is surprisingly weak. You know, I listened to, uh, I'm sure you're probably familiar with Malcolm Kendrick, and I know he has a, uh, his, his thought is that it's really uh, a process of uh, basically blood clots. You know, that's what's happening initially. There's endothelial damage. The clotting cascade occurs. You know, the endothelium re-epithelializes, you know, basically, you know, over with these pro-endothelial cells over the top of that and we get cholesterol in, in this in this kind of subendothelial level layer which is confusing the picture are you aware of that sort of uh, thought uh, yeah i mean look inflammation chronic inflammation is very much like a fire right you either have control over the fire or you don't some fires are very clearly under control you you know something caught on fire in your sink and you're like, ah, and you immediately go and attack and you try to put it out. Some fires ah, have started in your house and in a given moment, in a snapshot, you don't know if it's really out of control or not, but you can probably take a snap judgment, 
spread. But it's not going to prevent you from taking action to put the fire out. Atherosclerosis can be argued to be a natural process by which you're trying to do a number of different things to deal with an injurious or uh, a pathogen-based uh, problem. That's why in the absence of oxidative stress, you don't see a lot of atherosclerosis, right? In the absence of inflammation, you don't see a lot of atherosclerosis. So like the fire, there's a point in which you lose control in your ability to put it out. But do you blame that which you're doing to try to put the fire out when that gets out of control, even if that seems to start looking like it's a participatory process? You have to prove it's an accelerant. That's the point. What do you, because Zach, let me, Zach, let me jump in there if you've got anything that, that, that piqued your interest, because I've, I've got this tons of things I can ask Dave all day. Yeah, you know, it sounds like kind of what you're saying in short is that like by, by looking at the LDL particles as, you know, dangerous or the levels of them as dangerous, we're kind of looking at um, the vehicle at which we're, our bodies are trying to use to mitigate damage rather than the damage itself, which would be like the inflammation, the chronic inflammation. Right. And you know what? It might be worth kind of taking a step back and emphasizing one clear point because we talked first about energy delivery. And now we're kind of talking about how it can be uh, utilized uh, in the process of inflammation for an inflammatory response, right? A, a good analogy is if I said to you guys, hey, I've really been using my car a whole lot last week. Can you believe it? You, you wouldn't know how to react to that news because I didn't really tell you a lot. Cars can be used for lots of things. So your natural follow-up question would be, that's interesting, Dave, but you know, what did you use it for? And if I said, eh, well, I used it to take my sister to the hospital every day. Well, that that's a bad sign. I mean, it's bad that my sister had to go to the hospital, but I'm now talking about having used my car a lot in order to accomplish that. If on the other hand, I was going to a concert every night, or I was going to a party, or I was going to see Avengers Infinity War, which I could probably see another seven times. Uh, that, that suggests that it was for a good purpose, right? Or one that I, that I intended it for. Okay. Well, here's the thing about vehicles that can be used for multiple purposes. They could be, you could see that your, uh, grandma who never uses her car unless she's taking herself to the hospital as a net negative effect. If she's using her car, that's her bad sign because that you can be confident of because it's the only time she uses that car. And I'm telling you, and I'm telling lipidology, and I'm telling cardiology, and, and endocrinologists, and anybody who's going to listen, I have a whole category that I'm very confident of for which uh, lipoproteins are being used for energy distribution, and it makes perfect sense that if you're fat adapted, that they could be higher, particularly if you're leaner and or fit. So I'm not ruling out that there can be bad reasons for your LDL particle count and your LDL cholesterol to be higher. And it may be to do something like to fight an infectious disease or to fight inflammation and so forth, especially if it's chronic, right? Hey, but Dave, let me, let me can I jump in here? No, okay. Sorry, Dave. I, I just want a question that I think is pretty important uh, that might be germane to this topic. You know, we get, we get a lot of discussion about particle size. You know, the big fluffy ones being the ones that are supposedly healthy and the little bitty ones, which are the ones that are damaging. Do you see, based upon the, situ the clinical situation, 
the development of the small ones versus the large ones to, to kind of carry your same theme of what, what the purpose is? Does the purpose change the, the size of the particle? So I get this one a lot. And when I started out this journey, uh, I was absolutely on the big fluffy versus small dense bandwagon. The further down the rabbit hole I get, the more that I find that there was an obviously good reason why there was a higher association of smaller LDL particles with disease before. And for that, I would almost kind of like hand off the baton to Siobhan Huggins. She's got some really good stuff on this uh, as far as how the, the body would actually, as part of the immunological response, have effectively a different modeled pathway for LDL particles that would ultimately result in a higher presence of smaller LDL particles. Okay, now that said, I likewise know that it's a physical reality that as your VLDLs drop off triglycerides, they do not typically completely empty out all of their triglycerides. They usually have a little bit left over by the time that they're getting absorbed by the liver in their final remodeled uh, IDL stage or very end-of-life LDL stage. So it's basically two times in which they can be absorbed by the liver. And the reason I bring this up is because there are, for example, some people like there's an ultramarathoner I'm in contact with, and he has high, small LDL particles, but his inflammation markers are stunningly good. And his uh, CRP, even after a 100-mile run, is like 0.6. I've never seen anything like it before. So his body is like this mean, lean, fat-burning machine. And I can't help but keep thinking, well, if he's really that low-carb, that militantly low-carb, and he's very low body fat, why wouldn't there be a higher depletion of triglycerides on a per-particle basis? Why wouldn't they just dig a little bit deeper on the existing energy supply since it's right there? It's, it's right there in the particles to begin with. And thus, I don't, I don't know how much I can apply that universally across the board. So, you know, because Dave, I know we've talked pretty extensively about your, your thoughts on energy metabolism and how energy is trafficked in the blood. And so just to that point, you're saying if someone, you know, is pretty lean and they're using a lot of energy, they're going to they're going to suck that triglyceride or that energy out of that lipoprotein until it gets to a smaller size. Is, is that what is that how I interpret that from what you just said? That's what I suspect. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense it's, to me. So, so I mean, you know, I know there's again a lot of people they talk about these low particle size, and, and you know, I, I, I've followed you enough and, and done enough of my own reading to say we don't know really a lot of this stuff. There's so many conditional things that make these things, these biomarkers, very unpredictable and unreliable, and I think we over rely on them in general. And I think there's, you know, like I said, I know you're a big fan of the system based approach where we have to look at the whole system and how is the system operating. So could you touch on a little bit on that sort of analogy and then or that 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 overall thought and then and then go back to your the whole energy model, you know, how how we're we're trafficking energy. Uh sure. Well the first thing I think is to hit up what everyone already knows and they tend to think of um, after they go into keto. Many people, myself included, I just I understood it as, hey, you eat fat and the fat gets broken down to ketones and now you're now you're powered by ketones. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of people don't realize that actually the majority of the energy being supplied to your tissues 
on even a ketogenic diet is proportionally higher in direct fatty acid delivery. And by and a better way of putting that is um, fat that's not broken down into ketones, fat that's instead physically delivered in these lipoproteins. And when it's delivered, that's that's a that's a whole other process. But the the truth is, fat is what they would call highly reduced. And in other words, it's kind of very condensed energy. Um, I think it's a, um, I think a glucose molecule yields something like 34 to 38 ATP, I want to say. Um, but a long chain fatty acid, um, I think Palmetic, for example, uh, has roughly 106 ATP yield. That long chain fatty acid is grouped in, with two other brothers together in one triglyceride, tri for three. That's three fatty acids. One VLDL released by your liver will have around 2,500 triglycerides. So that's 7,500 long chain fatty acids. Multiply that times uh, 100 ATP and then realize just what quantity of LDL particles we all have, even somebody who's not on a low-carb diet, let's say that they have uh, around a thousand nanomoles of um, uh, LDLs in their body right now, the vast majority of them originated as VLDLs. And nanomoles is a very large number. It's, it's basically in quintillions. So I'm actually going to be using this in an upcoming uh, presentation at uh, low-carb, on the low-carb cruise. But over the course of this week, Sean, you, your, your co-host, myself, we are going to make and then reabsorb as many LDL particles as there are grains of sand in every beach and desert around the world. About 7.5 quintillion. Does, does that give you kind of a, a perspective of what scale we're talking about here, right? So... When I'm moving my numbers up and down, when I'm, and when I'm moving it from, say, uh, 1,200 nanomoles to 2,200 nanomoles based on the food that I've eaten, like I eat more fat and then it goes lower, I eat less fat and it goes higher, that shows a level of control that we can't even comprehend, that my liver's bringing them in and out of circulation to be sure to meet the existing energy, demean, uh, energy demands, especially while well, I'm on a low-carb, high-fat diet. Yeah, I mean, it, well, I mean, anytime we talk about something in the body, it's amazing at the scale and the complexity and the, and the enormous numbers we're dealing with. You know, that goes for a whole bunch of things. You know, one of the one of the things, topics that often I see are one of the sort of uh, recurring themes with people that go on these diets and they talk about labs is, you know, don't get any labs for the six, first six months because you know, a lot of people are actively losing weight and they're transitioning over. What what does a, what does active weight loss do to these blood limits? Can you comment on that? Funny stuff? You should ask that, Sean. <laughs> 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 I happen to be actively losing, I think, about 0.4 pounds a day, something like that. Um, and of course, I'm getting the scans and so forth. But during the period in which I was closer to 0.6 pound loss a day, so, I mean, I have the most beautiful lined graph. Um, can't pull it up right now, but basically you can see perfectly my LDLC is just climbing precipitously by, I want to say, 
30 milligrams per deciliter a day. I, I'll have to double check the numbers, but it's it's getting substantially higher and higher and higher, my total cholesterol and my LDL. And relative to what it would have been, because I know this because this existing diet plan was copied from the pre-Skittles experiment um, uh, washout period. So I, I actually know what it should have been, and we'll have that for a nice, strong one-to-one -one comparison. And the only real explanation that I can see outside of a time difference is that it's because I'm actively losing weight. So yes, I agree with you. I would, I would prefer people could wait six months at a minimum, at a minimum, please try to be at least like three months. Um, I get a bit frustrated with people who reach out after like two weeks. Cause I, I, I'm very skeptical that anybody in active weight loss two weeks into a diet in which they've changed their metabolic pathway, is going to be reflective of what it would have been months from then. Yeah, I mean, and again, that that just goes to show you how dynamic these numbers are. And I, I keep harping on that about labs in general. You know, we, we we get excited about one number that we get checked, you know, once a year. And sometimes, you know, lifelong medical decisions are made. You know, you, you go to your doctor and your LDLs. 200 and then all of a sudden you know that's the only test they do and all of a sudden you're on a statin for the rest of your life and you've proved time and time again yeah with with yourself and you you've proven with other people and in a high percentage of the people that that number particularly ldl is something that can fluctuate you know 20 30 percent or more in, in a period of even a few days which i think is just something that you can't i can't keep saying that enough and i know you're out there saying that but i think can you just kind of you know, walk people through that again. Just I know you have the, the, the quote unquote Feldman protocol where you uh, load up on fats for a period of time. And can you just kind of tell people that, that that three to four day cycle that you discovered? Yeah. So the so what you're referring to is um, I typically call it the inversion pattern. Uh, but to, to actually double back real quick on what you just said, I think that taking a single annual uh, cholesterol test is like taking a yardstick out into the water of an ocean during a hurricane and sticking it in and just taking a snapshot. Like that's, that's how crazy it is for somebody to say, Oh, that's the water line. It's, it's, it's an extremely dynamic system that moves up and down continuously. And if, if you've seen 1% of 1% of my work, it definitely demonstrates this. So the inversion pattern, basically how this is working is the, the overall theory is simply this, and it's, it's sounds almost too obvious. But your body is constantly in a game with you to counterbalance what you are feeding it. So you feed it a lot of energy, well then it's not going to release a lot of energy from your existing energy stores. Oh, you're not eating a lot of energy? Well then it is. Now, there are more considerations to be taken into place that make it much more complex if you're on a carb-centric or if you're on a mixed diet. Well, let's say you're on a diet that's primarily fat-based. Well, the neat thing is you now know what that supply of energy is, both on the on the eating side, because it's going to go into the chylomicrons, and the, the, uh, and the chylomicron delivery is going to be something you can track, but typically don't if it's a fasted lipid test. But you also know that which it's counterbalancing against, which is typically in the form of these VLDLs that come from the liver. That's typically from fat from storage. And so the inversion pattern is quite simple. If you eat a lot of fat over a three-day period, that will have an enormous impact on the, um, the VLDLs that would have been coming up from storage 
were you not doing that? Therefore, they're down-regulated. So your body's basically detecting, hey, we're in a state of abundance. We're now into just storing fat as opposed to withdrawing it. We're making deposits. We're not making withdrawals. And therefore, we don't need to mobilize as many of these VLDLs to supply that energy. And since there's less VLDLs being uh, supplied, there'll be less resulting LDLs, the end of their life cycle. VLDLs ultimately remodel to LDLs. Conversely, if you don't eat a lot of fat, or for that matter, if you just fast, whatever diet you're on, if you just fast, and you force your body to use more of your fat stores in your adipose tissue, that means there's more lipolysis. If there's more lipolysis, that means more fatty acids are going to the liver. That means the liver is going to bring up more VLDLs, and therefore there'll be more LDLs, more LDL particles, and therefore more LDL cholesterol that rides along in it. Yeah, I saw a study the other day. It looked at uh, people that had fasted for a week and they checked their cholesterol. I think it was their LDL cholesterol. It was shown to be up 36%, which, you know, just eating nothing, like you said, causes that transfer of energy from the liver to the tissues. And so I think it's an important concept to know. I mean, cholesterol is, is there any such thing as good cholesterol or bad cholesterol, or is it just the same molecule? No, no it's the same molecule. They. It's, it's frustrating because uh, it's only where they find the molecule. So, uh, so when they say the bad cholesterol is LDL cholesterol, what they really mean is it's the cholesterol found in an LDL particle. And when they say it's good cholesterol, they're HDL cholesterol, that really just means it's cholesterol found inside of an HDL particle. And that's, that's really all it means. Cholesterol really only comes in two flavors, uh, esterified and unesterified, but it's the same molecule wherever it's at. And guess what? It's all over the place. It's in every single cell of your body. Hey, let's, let's, let's continue to, to, to knock down, uh, <laughs> dogmatic things. Dave, I've always been told you have to have super high HDL being really high is always a good thing. Is that always the case or, or are there exceptions to that rule? So, <clears throat> There are definitely exceptions to that rule, and one of the most obvious ones is alcohol. Um, if, you, if you're an alcoholic, it can be very common for you to have uh, both fatty liver and very high HDL cholesterol because you, you're, you're, you've got a different version of dyslipidemia, so that is a problem. Um, I'll likewise say that I theorize that people who are on a low-carb, high-fat diet may have a margin of high HDL that's not for strictly protective purposes, but actually maybe because HDL is part of the energy delivery pathway. But that's a little more advanced. I'm mainly just saying that I think that that part's benign. It's not necessarily good or bad. Um, but generally speaking, I can say with a lot of confidence that HDL is a good barometer of things going well in your body. Uh, in, in other words, often in a disease-fighting state or in a metabolically dysregulated state, HDL is very low a lot of the times, and that's usually a good indicator. Tell me about, I know one of, the, one of your favorite biomarkers, if you had to pick one, is something called remnant cholesterol. Can you explain a little bit about the significance of remnant cholesterol and why you like it? Absolutely. So remnant cholesterol, and I, I want to caveat real quick that I'm still fairly early into the research of this but it actually matches my energy model in many respects, and I'll explain why in a moment. Remnant cholesterol, as Wikipedia would tell you, is basically all cholesterol that is neither LDL cholesterol nor HDL cholesterol. And that may seem a little unintuitive at first, because you would think, oh, well, wait a sec, it's gotta be one or the other. 
But I just got done talking about chylomicrons and VLDLs, which are in the early stages of the life cycles of lipoproteins. And if you were able to just track the cholesterol that's in VLDLs and in IDLs, they're intermediate uh, lipoproteins, and add those together, you would find that that was a much stronger marker for disease than LDL cholesterol by itself. Now, that may seem intuitive because I'm talking about cholesterol that's really in the same boat. It, start, it's, it starts as a VLDL, becomes an IDL, becomes an LDL. Why would finding more cholesterol in VLDLs, which you always have some amount in your body, and ignoring the cholesterol that's in LDLs matter? The reason is because, again, the VLDL's main job is to drop off fatty acids, and it does it quickly. It's supposed to do it within like an hour at the most. And then if it doesn't get absorbed by the liver as an IDL, it then remodels to an LDL where it, sp where it spends the rest like 99 to 98% of the rest of its time span, two to four days, as an LDL particle. Well, the question is why would there be a problem with the VLDL dropping off fatty acids to tissues? Why would that be a problem? And obviously the, odd, the obvious solution to that is you're in a state of hyperinsulinemia along with being well past your personal fat threshold. There's no parking. There's nowhere to put the energy because your, your fat cells are stuffed full. So the, the less total gradated spots for it to stop at have been reduced substantially. And then what do you see? You see not only higher total VLDL particles where they shouldn't be, but on top of that, you see the cholesterol found inside them, which is remnant cholesterol. And you tend to see very high triglycerides because, of course, they're still bloated with the triglycerides they've been trying to drop off. So an easy way that you can find this number out for yourself is you take your existing lipid panel and you subtract from total cholesterol, HDL and LDL cholesterol. And that remainder will be your remnant cholesterol score. You mentioned insulin. Tell me how insulin directly affects the capacity of our lipoprotein and uh, you know our lipid transport system. How does it interfere with that? Uh, well, actually, yeah, insulin, of course, one one thing I've got to plug is uh, Benjamin Bickman has some of the best stuff on insulin, and, and actually also Ted Naiman uh, has some great presentations for hyperinsulinemia. Uh, both of which are just very, they, they've just got amazing work on it. And we've got, we've got Ben coming on the comes, show next week. <laughs> we've got Ben oh, on the show fantastic. next week, so we'll talk to him about that too. Cool. Go ahead, go ahead Dan. I like succeeding him and, and, or I'm sorry, I like preceding him and not succeeding him because I, I just love that guy. He's fantastic. Um, so here's what it comes down to. Your body needs to be going between a fed state and a fasted state a lot. And it should be in a fasted state most of the time, right? Insulin is, and I'm certainly not the first to say this, insulin in a lot, in a lot of ways is kind of the um, predominant bull in that it's, it's going to knock everything else out of the way to, to get things rolling in a, in a uh, growth and storage uh, capacity. So typically if you're in a hyperinsulinemic state like I was with my um, – with my mixed diet in order to try to gain weight, I just get hypercaloric, I get mixed, so I have both glucose and um, 
fatty acids coming in. And then I get my body into a place where it can say, well, we cannot use energy faster than we can pull it out of both short-term and long-term storage. Therefore, it's just all going to have to go to long-term storage. Well, what about when you get to a place in which you have a very broken metabolism because you've already maxed out your fat threshold to the extent to where you could even be on just what might be considered a, a normal diet, not seem to be hypocaloric at all, but you're still in the state of, of hyperinsulinemia and there's just not enough places to stage your fatty acids to then do more resupply back to your uh, muscle tissue, your cardiac tissue and so forth. This is where being an engineer, I feel like, has kind of equipped me well because I keep thinking about this in terms of actual physical space allocation. And in that sense, there really is a diminishing returns factor once you get past the cer certain threshold where physically you're in a really disastrous state. Um, not only when your personal fat threshold is maxed out, but also if your glycogen stores are topped off in your liver. So its capability to even sense uh, the staging and pacing of everything becomes limited. But, and I realize I'm getting a little bit into the weeds here, my larger point is that insulin is a good indicator um, of where things started going wrong and that they're on their way to getting worse. And typically what I tend to find in people that I see the best markers for, save, you know, again, LDL cholesterol, as I would be told, is that they tend to have very low fasting insulin, yet they tend to have uh, extraordinary throughput on their uh, fatty acids. They seem to, they seem to make use of their free fatty acids constantly. If we were to put a turnstile into their adipocytes, it would just be spinning constantly. Just as fast as they put fat into their uh, adipose tissue, it's coming right back out, and that means that they're spending much more time in a fasted state than the, the average person would be which is why I theorize, and I'll be talking about this next month with my speech on lean mass hyperresponders, I theorize that they're enjoying a higher level of total autophagy because they're effectively in a kind of blended fasted state. They have super low levels of insulin and only need very low levels of insulin to function. And that's why they also feel so amazing. Zach, do you got anything? It's, yeah. Uh... Yeah, no, this has been awesome, Dave. You're definitely shedding a, a ton of light on some of the stuff that I'm, I'm sure our listeners will will be happy to hear about. Uh, you did touch on something that I was kind of interested interested in uh, being an ultra marathon runner myself. When I'm out there at a race, like say like a hundred mile event, my like fueling plan is essentially like I get really fat adapted through a ketogenic diet and uh, leading into the event, and then uh, during the event, I don't eat fat because I'm trying to bypass digestion as much as possible. So my thought is that, um, you know, even the leanest athletes have enough body fat to kind of get through a single event. So it'd be better to kind of metabolize that fat as opposed to trying to digest it. Um, and then have to deal with that type of a scenario while you're, you're moving through wherever trail road track, whatever event or environment you're racing on. And um, so when you were talking before about like the difference between the body kind of breaking down fat that's on board versus like exogenous fatty sources, um, would you expect then for me, like after a race like that, when I get, if I would get my blood tested to see that, that cholesterol or those like uh, um, the LDL particles like really high just because I had been essentially utilizing the onboard fat sources? 
Well, I, I most certainly would like to point you to a, um, I, I have a blog post, I think it's uh, distance running or endurance running, its effects on cholesterol. And there's a counterbalancer. And it's the reason I've already told Sean that I believe his LDL particles are probably lower, his LDL particles and his LDL cholesterol are probably lower relative to somebody else in his position. Like if I could clone Sean and say, sorry, cloned Sean, I want you to just do distance running. I don't want you to do any of this resistance training. I suspect. <laughs> I you'd, have suspect an you'd have an unhappy clone. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. I suspect the other Sean would have relatively higher levels of LDL particles and LDL cholesterol. The reason is because part of the purpose of LDL particles is for muscle repair, or for that matter, any cellular repair, because they already have uh, something known as uh, uh, endocytosis, receptor-mediated endocytosis. What they do is, is they, it, it's basically just another word for engulf. They just engulf an LDL particle, and then they digest it effectively. They pull apart its uh, phospholipids and its cholesterol and all of its contents and make use of it for their own purposes. I mean, the membranes of cells are the same thing as the membranes of lipoproteins. So I suspect if you're doing ultramarathon and you have a recovery period, and during that recovery period, you probably have a lot of muscle repair that's actually in counter to the total use of your um, existing lipolysis that got induced is actually going to be actively repairing and therefore removing it from the bloodstream. So one's bringing it up, one's bringing it down. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So what, what I would love, what I would love is if there was the ability for you to do an ultra marathon on a non-weekend day, which I know is unlikely, um, and you were able to get a blood test, like a lipid blood test immediately following the ultra marathon, and then for a succession of days afterwards, that would be a very powerful biohack experiment. I'll just say that in advance. <laughs> so they actually have a, stu a study like that. They did, they, um, Dr. Volokh and Dr. Finney actually were testing, um, did a couple of tests actually, I think at the Western States 100, and they were actually withdrawing blood from some athletes during the event, as well as doing saliva swabs. And then afterwards there was like a three day period where, um, we're giving blood to kind of see some of those, those after effect numbers and things like that. Oh, I didn't know about that. Um, yeah, I, I can't remember the name of the study, but I can, on. I can definitely dig it up and, and send it your way. But I know it was uh, Dr. Finney and Dr. Volick. And, uh, one of the things that I do remember about that study is they also had a high carb cohort alongside and the oxidative stress difference between the high carb and the high fat athletes was like off the charts. It looked like with the high fat cohort that you're talking about the faster study. No, no, that's another one by Finney and Volick, but, uh, this one was actually in the field of, uh, the Western States 100, um, and, but yeah, the faster study kind of looks into some of that stuff too, but they used a three hour treadmill session as opposed to a hundred mile race. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, Dave, that's okay. Dave, I was just going to say, if you could comment in general, because you've had the opportunity to, to look at a lot of these <clears throat> so-called lean, lean mass hyper responders and other athletes that have sent your blood work. Have you seen any general trends generally in, in energy metabolism in athletes compared to more sedentary people that, that might shed some light on people that have questions? Uh, could you maybe elaborate a little bit more on that? 
So, like, do you, you're you talking about just general general attributes of a lean mass hyperresponder beyond just their just beyond the cut points? Yeah, I mean, you could, you know, just in just in regards to energy, whether it's traffics and triglycerides, free fatty acids, you know, lipoprotein particles, you know, other sources of energy, ketones, glucose. Have you noticed any sort of trends that set athletes aside from yes. non-athletes? Yes, yes. Okay, so first of all, the lean mass hyperresponders in general, I mentioned the cut points a little bit earlier, but just to recap, typically... LDL cholesterol tends to be above 200. Uh, HDL cholesterol tends to be above 80. I often see them even in the hundreds. Um, and triglycerides tend to be below 70, and I've seen them in the 30s and 40s even, uh, which again, to me, suggests high triglyceride usage, that it's actually succeeding at doing it. Now, there are some other um, things that make a lot of sense to me, don't necessarily make sense to other people, but I feel like it it's almost even obvious. One of them is there tends to be higher fasting glucose. I know you and I talked about that a little bit, Sean. Um, you're you're like a person who stands way apart from virtually anything I see. But the uh, but I often will see lean mass hyperresponders with fasting glucose in like say the 90s and even in the low hundreds if they are and they they tend to freak out about this because like me they go low carb. They see exciting, you know, late 70s, mid 80s, and then precipitously gets higher, oftentimes as they get healthier. And I tend to I tend to feel very confident that this is adaptive glucose sparing. And the reason is because they tend to also have likewise the lowest insulin numbers. Why would you have very low fasting insulin, but you know, mid 90s fasting? glucose. Well, there seems to be an obvious reason, especially if you do a lot of exercise that's not even just endurance, but is uh, high activity, explosive kinds of uh, exercise. It's it, Glucose is better suited for that. We shouldn't be so anti-glucose from the you know ingesting carb side that we um, diminish it from the endogenous side. If your body wants to have glucose, let it have glucose. And if it gets better about utilizing fat at all times and sparing away the glucose in order for what it may be the most appropriate for, which is explosive exercise, don't be so scared of it necessarily if we don't see any other deleterious effects associated with having it. Um, so that's one that's one commonality with lean mass hyperresponders, especially if they're very fit and athletic. Another one is they tend to have lower BHB when tested, beta-hydroxybutyrate, which of course is the blood ketone um, that you can you know, get for the test strips with Keto Mojo and so forth. And again, <laughs> when, you're, when you're testing the bloodstream, I probably have said this a million times, and I'm sure I'll say it a million more times. When you're testing anything in the bloodstream, you're testing what is in transit and not yet in use. So you, you, you're not getting the whole story of any particle that's passing through. So it could be for, this is why, you know, somebody who has a glucose of 200 or 300, that doesn't mean that they just have more energy. But I find all the time that there are people who are like, oh my gosh, I finally got my BHB up to seven millimoles. So I'm really, really, really in ketosis. And I think that there's some threshold, I don't know what it is, and it's probably somewhat individualistic, for which it's kind of on the excess side, just like there is for triglycerides being also a form of energy, just like glucose. There is some point in which it's on the excess side and it's not getting a higher utilization. Well, if you're a lean mass hyperresponder, you're probably utilizing your BHB more than your sedentary counterparts. 
you're, and because you have higher utilization, it may be that a BHB of you know 0.5, 0 0.6 wouldn't be that surprising at all, given just how hardcore you are with your exercise. Let me two more points, Dave. I don't want to keep. I know you've been just generous with your time and dropping all this tremendous knowledge, but I, there, there's just so much there that I want to extract, and we may have to do follow up later. But two points. I know you like to talk about these two topics. One is your gripe about studies that don't include all cause mortality when they look at you know, oh, endpoints, when they look at cardiovascular endpoints. So could you elaborate on why that's important? Why we need to do that? And then the other thing is you, uh, you've issued a challenge to other lipidologists to show you a study that says high DL, high LDL in the presence of favorable triglyceride high, uh, HDL ratios is problematic. Can you talk about those two topics? Yes. Um, let's go ahead and just tack on another five hours to this, to this <laughs> podcast just to hit these two. <laughs> okay, look, first things first. We genuinely don't care. If we really stick to it, we really we really think about it, we care the most about how long we're alive, right? And I think a lot of us would say, and you want to be alive and in health as long as possible. I, I don't want to be broken for you know the last two decades of my life, even if I could extend my life by two more decades. Okay, so with that in mind, it's assumed Whenever anybody approaches you, it's assumed if I say, hey, this pill will reduce your chance of getting uh, a heart attack by 50%. You assume when I say that, that I mean, and therefore you will die less. Because if you were going to die of a heart attack, that's now been reduced by 50% less. And hey, your chances of dying of cancer, Alzheimer's disease, infection, all of those are all the same. Right? That's the assumption. And it's understandable why people would be taken in by that assumption. Now, this is my problem. Very early on, as I started doing research into myself, like when I was worried that I would die of a heart attack before I knew nearly as much as I do now about lipidology, I very quickly assumed that there would be, you know, a number of studies that would show that people just died sooner uh, if they didn't get their cholesterol-lowering medication. And for that matter, that the elderly population would all be populated with a lot more people who naturally had lower LDL cholesterol, both of which were just flatly wrong. Uh, in fact, one of them is shockingly wrong to this day in that there's been no – I have this straight from a study that just got released uh, last month, but it summarized it directly. It said uh, with statins, there's actually been no study that showed a statistically significant reduction in all-cause mortality, save Jupiter – and I'm not going to go into Jupiter, but Jupiter's requirements were that you had elevated CRP. So you're already inflamed in order for there to be a problem. Uh, but there's also just problems with the study itself. But set that aside, effectively, outside of Jupiter, there's no single statin study. No single statin study that shows a net statistical significant reduction in all-cause mortality. The reason that's so important is because you never get that impression from being told that. And this gets even worse when you take into account some studies like PCSK9 studies, like um, uh, Repatha, for example, uh, I think it was Fourier, actually had more deaths in the control arm, the ones who were not taking the drug, than who were. But that didn't change the advertising strategy. The advertising strategy was to talk about how there were less cardiovascular deaths and events in the experimental arm. And that's what they went with. <laughs> and it's on the market today, right? 
so my 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 anger with this and the way I try to um, illustrate because I don't I try to be a very dispassionate scientist I really do but I get kind of passionate about about poor measurements that seem to be by design an easy way to counteract this is I can tell you guys a diet and I'm sure you're Sean you've heard of it I have a diet that can reduce your cardiovascular risk by 99.999% and it can also reduce your chance of dying of Alzheimer's disease by 99.9 actually pretty much the top 10 things. Zach, have you heard about this diet? No. Okay. It's the cyanide diet. I promise you, if you go on this diet tomorrow, your chance of dying of cardiovascular disease has just dropped to nearly the floor, right? Unless you have a heart attack right before you have a chance to ingest it. <laughs> so you get my point. If I say, hey, your chance of dying by X has been reduced by whatever percentage, what I'm really saying is, I know that your chance of dying by X has been reduced. And there's, a, there's an important explicit message that needs to be put forth, which is, hey, this will reduce your chance of dying, period, because this category has been reduced. And that's, that's why I get very passionate about it. I get very upset because I feel like every study that makes any claim on mortality, any claim, should lead in the, in the abstract, in the results, it should lead with what the all-cause mortality results were. And I, and I believe if that happened, we would have such a sudden efficiency gain in medicine overall because there would be a lot less of this, um, frankly, advertising that's going on. Uh, I, I feel a lot of times like basically this is a roundabout way to say, hey, let's try to market to people who really aren't going to take this into the larger account of what it really means to living or dying. Uh, because they tend to be a little more honest about that with things like surgeries, but they, they're not as much when it comes to medication. And that's a major frustration for me. Um, that's, a sort of, that's definitely a source of a major frustration for me. So, Sean, to get to the other question you had, it was on the low-carb cholesterol challenge, as I call it. And as of this recording, it's actually my pinned tweet. So it's worth reading straight up for anybody who's not actually seen this. Um, it's called Take the Low-Carb Cholesterol Challenge. There has been much complaining that those on a low-carb, high-fat diet are overly comforted by low triglycerides and high HDL cholesterol, even when their LDL cholesterol has increased. That's like the first bubble. And so then I have a call to action on the second bubble. I say, so submit to Dave Keto. That's my Twitter handler. The best study you can find that shows normal, non-treated people who have high HDL, low triglycerides, and high LDL who have high rates of cardiovascular disease. So, Sean, you observed the flood of studies that have come at me since I put that out, right? Yeah, the tweets, they just don't stop continuously. I think you're up to all the way up to zero right now, correct? <laughs> right. <laughs> Now, I will give credit to one lipidologist who tried to take a shot at it, um, uh, Brian, I forget his last name, but he's he did find one that stratified for HDL, but it didn't stratify for uh, triglycerides, um, and, and it had a few other issues that didn't quite meet it. But outside of that, that's just been pretty much the one attempt, and uh, until... And what's hilarious about this is that there already, we already do have Framingham offspring, that do stratify. It's the only major study of a decent population size that I'm aware of. 
that stratifies by these three categories and doesn't have people who are uh, genetically unusual and doesn't have people who are on lipid-lowering medication, which is effectively what this challenge is. And they stratify by HDL, triglyceride, and LDL. And guess what? People with very high LDL had low cardiovascular disease if they had high HDL and low triglycerides. And that is, again, not explained anywhere. I challenge this back to lipidologists all the time. And they don't have an explanation for this. And they don't, like me, want to press for getting this information. Like, why can't we get more of this stratification from existing statin trials? Why can't we see how much of an impact this has on people who would be considered more cardioprotective? Especially if they want to sell it to those people as well. Especially if they want to say, hey, your high HDL and your low triglycerides won't help you. That's why this, this stratification is uh, showing a benefit as well. And I suspect it's because it doesn't. I suspect statins aren't benefiting that stratification, or I think they have paraded. Yeah, so you say there's not a one-size-fit-all lab marker or, or, or uh, a drug for everybody. There, there's, there's all kinds of unique situations, which is something I've kind of talked about quite a bit. Let me, let me kind of just switch gears again, because I like doing this. Um, I like to talk about where the rubber meets the road, you know, what's actually going on. Cause I, you know, I, like you, I think blood is, is really old technology. I mean, we, it's easy to access, but what really counts is what's going on at the tissue level or, you know, or, or even on the system level. But I know you've recently looked at your carotid intimate medial thickness scores. And I've seen a couple other high fat, low carb people with relatively high cholesterol have shown me, uh, pretty favorable. Uh, results. Can you talk, touch on that or talk about your stuff on that a little bit? Uh, absolutely. Well, of course, being able to detect atherosclerosis outside of the blood is kind of a challenge. Um, the surrogates that are often brought up are the carotid intermedia uh, intima thickness score, the CIMT, and uh, the calcification, uh, CAC. Another one is... Um, Another one is literally getting a CT heart scan, which I did do last year. I actually flew to New York to get the most advanced one I could find that was non-invasive. And so I literally have like a 3D model of my heart and all of my arteries. And I plan to get in seven to 10 years another CT. They're, they're very radiation intensive. So they're not, they're not, again, another one of those things I don't recommend other people do. But we'll actually be able to really see if there was any uh, further thickening or um, uh, thrombosis uh, occurring or anything along those lines. But the CIMT is the one I get the most frequently because it's an ultrasound. So it's, it's not that high risk at all. And I've gotten it every six months. I just now took another one last week and I unfortunately haven't gotten the results back yet. But of the four that I had before that, again, this was every six months, the thinnest my carotid artery walls have been were in the last test. So this is after two years of being almost entirely keto. My, the thickness on my carotid arteries haven't even gone with my age, which is supposed to progressively go a little bit higher as you get older. It's gone the other direction. It's actually gone down towards the best two scores, both on the left and right side than any other time I'd had before it. Now, part of the reason I'm very interested in this next CIMT score is the last six months is when I've been doing these experiments that I discourage from everybody doing, including this mixed diet where I gained weight, et cetera. I'll be very interested to see what the CIMT score is coming off the heels of that because I don't know that I'm going to predict it's going to be um, heading south 
further. And in fact, I'm I'm a little concerned it might go up a little bit. But then again, I don't intend to stay that way. So uh, whatever the information will be, I'll be very interested to see what it is. It'll be interesting to see how facile that study is. You know, is is, is there something that 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 uh, you know that that thickness increases over a period of a few weeks to months, or is it something that we only see, you know, over a year? Because you know, I I think. We, in my opinion, if we can get enough people that are willingly say, I'm fine with my cholesterol being high, and then checking th- studies like that, that will really advance, uh, you know, uh, allay a lot of fears and, and potentially advance the science quite a bit. That's that's a very, you're, you're actually coming to the heart of something that's very important to me. These lean mass hyperresponders, and this is part of why I'm giving the speech on next uh, month and why it's so relevant. I'm going to be pointing out that effectively they are the ideal classification of people to take on the lipid hypothesis directly. This isn't my way of encouraging them to remain lean mass hyperresponders, just that I already know that there are plenty who don't care. They, they, they're like, okay, I hear what you're saying, Dave, and I hear that it's a warning, et cetera, but um, that said, I have never felt better. I believe in these scores, and as long as I keep seeing that there's no other progressing signs of atherosclerosis, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And for those people, I'd love to be able to get them together, ultimately, in a longer-term study. I'd love to be able to get, say, 60, 70, 100 lean mass hyperresponders in an ongoing follow-up study. Uh, But obviously, I'm not really in the field, so my ability to raise money to make that happen is somewhat limited because as my understanding is any long-term follow-up is just a very expensive study to conduct. But I believe that if you wanted any group of people to directly take on the lipid hypothesis, it would be, it would be people who had everything looking fantastic save one, and that's the LDL particle count and the LDL cholesterol being through the roof. If the lipid hypothesis holds, it should suggest that lean mass hyperresponders would be dropping like flies. And given the anecdotal evidence that I've seen up to this point, that's not what I'm predicting. Yeah. So if, if say, you know, we have a few of our listeners that said, hey, I'd, I'd like to contribute to this in my own way. You know, you would say, you know, do what you're doing with your diet, you know, you know, and, and get a get a sort of a baseline uh, carotid study and then just see how it see how it responds, you know, at six month intervals or three month intervals or whatever. What interval would you choose to look at that? Just just to. Just to see. If I, if I wasn't as busy as I am, I would actually go for three months. Um, if if I could talk any of your listeners who they're, they themselves are lean mass hyperresponders, I would love to talk them into doing at least six months, every six months, and observe it over time. To be sure, um, even with the four data points that I have up to this point, I'm not going to really feel confident in any long-term trends until I have something more like 10, like basically five years of observing it over time to like really feel confident in its stability. So even with the four that I have, it's still a small sample size. I would like them to keep that in mind with whatever their CIMT is doing over that period. Um, we do have one other kind of semi-famous case, which is uh, uh, Rock, Rock, Rocky Patel, I think it is. He's a doctor out of um, Arizona. Yeah, I think he's, a, yeah, I think he's uh, in Arizona. He's a, I think he's a family practice guy that kind of kind of works with the uh, kind of a cyclic ketogenic diet, if I'm not mistaken. And he hasn't put the blog post out yet, but he wrote an article way back in 2012. That was one of the first articles I read that said, uh, you could Google it, does LDLP even matter? And he demonstrates how, how early on 
he had uh, thicker carotid arteries, and they were regressing as he maintained higher levels of LDLC, LDLP on a low-carb diet. And he didn't say anything that explicitly hinted at it, but I'm going to guess that his blog post as it comes out now is not going to say that it reversed course substantially. I think he may still be in excellent shape. And again, these are still just anecdotes, still small sample sizes, but they're very relevant ones and ones I'm very interested to see as they progress. You know, and again, this is a thing, you know, we don't have any studies, you know, this is the one thing I look at with populational associational studies. I say, if, you know, if factor X is associated with, with Y, then you have to say at the end of that sentence, I think you need to say in all populations in every situation. <laughs> and, and we can't do that because you yeah. know, the, the low carb yeah. population is, just doesn't, doesn't fit the carnivorous population doesn't fit the crazy athlete outliers just don't fit with the, with the normal data. And so we have to get beyond that and look at the, uh, you know, the, 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 all the variables. Well, and that's, it's worth emphasizing just any conversation we're going to have needs to start with that acknowledgement up front. We're in uncharted territory. That's, that's both good and it's bad. There very well could be uh, diseases that may prop up that we never even knew about would you know, be a problem with a very low-carb diet or a keno, uh, uh, carnivorous diet that we just didn't realize would be a factor or may have something to do with the nature of the foods that we're eating today, with the way that they're being treated or additives or I don't know. Who knows? Right. But the point is, the term pioneer is somewhat romanticized, and it's romanticized, I say, because it typically applies to the people that it worked out for, <laughs> that the discovery was made. You just call the people who, you know, would have been called a pioneer but didn't work out for idiots, right? I don't know that I'm not going to be an idiot. I don't know that ultimately it's going to turn out that, no, lean mass hyperresponders will demonstrate uh, Ansel Keys' theory directly. And I don't make the claim to have that certainty that that's not what's going to happen. All I can do is go off of what I've been able to see up to this point. And to that extent, I will say this. I will say that it's been eye-opening to me how much existing medicine doesn't respond to new data. Um, and, I, and it may be that they really just only listen to the publications and that if it's in a published study, they don't even want to entertain any ad hoc experiments, even if it's got 100 anecdotes behind it. But that said, it's kind of shown how just how much science can kind of be developed in a bubble separately. And in a sense, that's kind of what you're doing right now, right? Like there's obviously a lot of people in the carnivore diet who are finding out for themselves what this is and they're sharing the knowledge amongst themselves. And it, and it may turn out that there are, you know, bad things that can occur. And then there may even be the process by which those things are addressed and taken care of over the course of time before medicine even takes note of it. We don't know yet. It's all, it's all unknown territory. But per your original point, I do have a problem with people saying, oh, well, this existing study based on these people that were on this entirely different diet and on entirely different metabolism applies to your population. Uh, that's, that's been my problem all along, particularly with applying like lots of these uh, epileptic children studies who, where they were on shakes in the early, you know, um, 19th century, or sorry, early 20th, 20th century, that that applies to the uh, nutritional ketosis diet of today, <laughs> is 
No, that's an entirely. That's not even comparable at all. You've got a disease state population. You, they're they're kids. They're they're uh, epilept, uh, epileptics. They're also dealing with uh, very processed shakes. And before there was even that much understanding of nutritional complete, completion. Yeah, I mean you're very true on all that stuff, Dave. I tell you what, we, we've gotten through a lot of material. I think people's heads are going to explode. They're going to have to take notes with this <laughs> thing. We probably better calm it, you know, back off for now and then maybe catch you a little bit later. What do you got coming up, Dave? I know you said you might be working on a book. You've got a lot of presentations coming up. Where can people find you? And what's what's the latest with uh, with uh, Iron Ninja Dave or Keto Dave? <laughs> well, so the uh, so yeah, there's the um, there's a lot of conferences I'm doing this summer. Uh, I'll be doing um, KetoCon followed by Ancestral Health Symposium followed by Keto Fest, followed by Low Carb USA, and also we'll be going to Gold Coast, which is in Australia. Um, I, and I think I want to take a break from conferences for a little while. I do have to focus on uh, this book, um, but there's also a new series of experiments I'll be doing on the heels of this one, depending on how this one goes. Uh, and yes, you can find out more about this at cholesterolcode.com. That's the uh, blog. Uh, and uh, my, I'm very active on Twitter as Dave Keto. And I'm working very closely. Uh, I've, I've got a colleague on board, um, Siobhan Huggins, who also is, um, that's also her Twitter handler, but also she's helping me out with cholesterolcode.com. And she's handling a lot that's on the uh, immunological um, and inflammatory response side of things. A lot of the uh, bad things that cholesterol helps you out with. So I definitely encourage uh, checking out a lot of her material as well. Yeah, that's, again, that's another whole 20-minute conversation, but, you know, cholesterol has a role in infection fighting, and so we probably don't need to get into that, but it's probably enough to say that there's a, cholesterol has a purpose, and its purpose is not to kill us. Um, how can people, I know there's people that might want to contribute to your work or help you out or help things along. Is there, is there, is there a mechanism by which they can do that, Dave? Uh, sure. Well, and thanks for the plug. Of course, you can do a direct donation through the site, through cholesterolcode.com, or you can do a... Um, uh, or you can sign up to Patreon. Uh, I have a Patreon at patreon.com slash Dave Feldman. Uh, there is some exclusive content there. For example, a lot of my vlogs through the course of the uh, experiments, so you can see the sausage making. <laughs> and a lot of my, um, a lot of me in a vulnerable state during a lot of the different things and me kind of pontificating, a whole bunch of other stuff like that. But that said, I don't want to make that too much of a sales pitch and that everything that's really ultimately very important will end up on the blog for free. And I don't and I don't want anyone to ever feel financially obligated to, you know, find the things that are going to be most relevant to them. Um, so and, and one thing that I prided, prided myself on, Sean, is I was pretty serious about trying to keep from having any business entities or affiliates um, funding the research because it could taint the integrity of the research. And I'm proud to say up to this point, it has been all individual funded. So I appreciate everybody who's been able to help me accomplish that up to this point. All right, Zach, any last words? Yeah, that was that was great, Dave. It was, it was awesome to have you on. And like Sean said, we'll definitely have to have you come back and uh, probably answer some of the the enormous questions we'll get based on all the, all the deep dives that we did today. Um, we'll be sure to put the links to all that stuff on the show notes too, folks. So if you're interested in uh, finding where Dave's at and uh, contributing to either the Patreon or um, or any of the other research stuff, then uh, you'll have those those things at your disposal. But uh, other than that, uh, thank you so much, Dave, for coming on and uh, have fun with all those presentations. Hey, folks. 
Thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. That's hpopodcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at ZBitter. That's at Z-B-I-T-T-E-R. And you can find Sean at SBakerMD. That's at S-B-A-K-E-R-M-D. We're both also on Instagram, where you can find me at ZachBitter. That's at Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R. And for Sean, it's at SeanBaker1967. That's at S-H-A-W-N-B-A-K-E-R-1967. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast.